podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bécher, meaning digger. Hello, everybody. Welcome along. It's another edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast. It's a Cricket Badger Podcast with a difference at the moment. We're doing the IPL dailies throughout the IPL 2021 competition. I have the pleasure of being joined by Lawrence Booth, the editor of the Wisdom Cricketers Almanac today. And Lawrence, we're getting to that time of year again, aren't we? Where, I guess, is it nerves? Is it apprehension? Is it excitement? Or is it all of the above when you release the next edition? Hi, James. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, it is all of the above, I think. I mean, this is the 10th I've done, unbelievably. It's taken up a decade of my life um, editing wisdom um that sounds like I, I resent it i don't at all it's been a huge honor and a privilege but yes you 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 get the butterflies in the stomach at the start of publication week we come out on well we're out on thursday and uh, you always hope that the reviews are, are kind and people notice the amount of work that's gone into it um you brace yourself for people spotting typos that's one of the cricket fans hobbies is it spot the mistake in wisdom and they'll, they'll be sure to let you know about it but all that means is that people are reading wisdom and if that keeps being the case then hopefully we'll keep selling books i suppose i mean even the oscar nominated films you still get those websites which uh, spot the continuity errors and stuff like that so it's not, it's not a bad thing to do is it not at all and in fact the the errata page as we call it where we publish errors from previous years can, can be hilarious you know it can be someone i think we had uh, something the other this year from a guy who'd scored 200 runs in 1920 not 2000 and he'd probably been dining out on that sort of feat for, <laughs> for a century so it's all it's all good fun and we want people to read us very carefully and we want people to keep telling us we've got things wrong hope not too many how much do I need to pay you then to say that James Butler is one of the greatest cricketers of all time <laughs> a lot a lot more than my <laughs> job's worth probably I mean, this is the 158th edition of this yellow book it's the most famous sports book in the world isn't it there is a degree of responsibility involved in your job isn't there yeah there is I mean when I got the job that was probably my first thought was don't mess it up I think I at the time I compared it to sort of handling a Ming vase you don't you don't want to drop <laughs> it you want to keep it in intact to pass on to the next editor and you 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 want to move with the times to a degree but you also want to respect the tradition that has uh, allowed it to be published continuously even through the war years for as you say over 150 years so yeah it's a huge honor I mean you, you can't you can't think about that too much, I guess, because it would sort of stop you editing and commissioning and trying to modernise. But yeah, um, you're, you're only passing through. As John Woodcock once said, he edited it for six editions in the 1980s. He said, all, all you're doing is keeping it warm for, for the next custodian. And that's pretty well how I see the job. Were you more nervous with the first one than you are with this one? Yes, I, I'm sure I probably was, actually. Um, I remember being very nervous at the, the annual dinner at Lord's where you, you have to stand up in black tie and give a speech in front of sort of 180 of the great and good of the game. And you're thinking, oh, if, if I get through this, <laughs> I'll be pretty happy. I remember getting home that night and punching the air, thinking, wow, I, I did that and I didn't think I could. I, I'm, that's not to say I'm, I'm blasé about it these days. I'm not. It's just that once you've I suppose you've done something a few times, it does, it does become a bit easier. And of course, this year was a different kind of challenge anyway, because of, of the coronavirus and, and how we deal with that. So there's always something new about wisdom, even though it's been going for 158 years. And your front cover, it changed to being a, a photograph, didn't it, from being just print. And you've got a, a picture of Stuart Broad in a mask this time to give a, the nod to COVID-19, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Um 
I think one of the things people sometimes overlook about Wisden is that it's a social history as much as it's a, a cricket history and you want to reflect the times that you live in. And frankly, that did unfortunately mean someone in a mask on the front cover. I mean, what, what image told the story of last year globally better than, than than someone wearing a mask? And and Stuart, of course, was one of the stars of England's summer, dropped for the first test, um, went on the rampage in a Big Brother-style interview on Sky, and then took 29 wickets at 13 apiece in the next five and, and showed everyone why he's still world-class at 34. So yeah, I've had one, there have been one or two complaints about the cover. Um, I think people sometimes object to real life intruding into wisdom, but the fact is real life intrudes into wisdom all the time. I mean, you only have to look at the thickness or thinness of the wartime editions to see that. And the the fact that, you know, 80 pages of the 1916 wisdom were given over to, to obituaries, you know, that cricket is part of real life, whether we like it or not. And it, and it seemed like we had to get a mask on the front cover. So when you come to the, I mean, obviously at the moment, you're all about this current year, but when you come to start thinking about next one, you've got a blank canvas there. I mean, there's a structure to wisdom, isn't there, which you're going to stick to, but you've got complete control of that. So you'd sit there in a dark room, do you, and think, right, what do I do this time? As you go through a year, are you making mental notes and think, well, that makes an article or that makes it, that's something we need to reflect? Yeah, yeah, exactly that, really. Um, I mean, one of the weird things about it is that you're commissioning stuff for the for the wisdom after the one that hasn't even been published yet. You know, the January the 1st, 2021, you're already thinking about wisdom 2022, and wisdom 2021 is still three and a half months away from publication. So it's a constant process. I mean, there are obviously peaks and troughs. There are moments in the year where you're working incredibly hard as opposed to quite hard. But yes, you're always thinking of, I mean, actually the front of book pieces, uh, the sort of part one section, people might think of them as essays, I suppose, is one of the biggest challenges. You know, you think about the editor's notes and the five cricketers, but actually getting that balance right at the front of book pieces where you're you're trying to reflect what's happened in the previous calendar year around the world, but you're also trying to throw in a bit of history, uh, a few pieces to surprise readers. You're marking anniversaries, that people might have forgotten. Trying to get that balance right is is a great challenge and trying to suck the best writers in and choosing the right men or women for the job. Yeah, I, I really enjoy that part of it. Who, who chooses the five cricketers of the year? I mean, the, the rules are they can't have been awarded it before. So it's always new a new five, isn't it? But who sits down and actually chooses those? Well, I mean, it, the editor gets has the final say, but I'll, I'll talk to a few people I trust. I mean, the whole, the editorial team, I'll be badgering them throughout the summer for who's your, so come on then, who's your latest five? If the season stopped now, who would you choose now? And they're like, look, can we just not wait till the end of the season? I'm like, yeah, but I'm kind of interested. So it, that, that's actually probably the funnest part of the job is picking, as you say, five people who haven't been chosen before. And of course, with the emphasis on the English summer. So the buck stops with me, which, you know, you you, you, du- you check, you double check, you triple check that you haven't missed out someone obvious because you do not want people turning around the following April going, uh, what happened to Virat Kohli? <laughs> what have I done? Sackable offence. But no, it, it, it's the editor's choice with a bit of help from his friends. I think if I'm going to bribe you, actually, I think I'll, I need to up my game and actually be one of the five wisdom cricketers of the year. I think that's <laughs> going to take serious money, more money than this cricket badger has got. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned the editor's notes there. That is a chance for you to actually really give, it's an opinion piece really, isn't it? As, as much as anything, you, you can actually have your say on on the game of cricket and be critical, be supportive, however you see it at the time. So there's more than a degree of responsibility because they are an important element of the book, aren't they? Yeah, they're the book soapbox. It's about 5,000 words each year. As you say, the, the editor gets to choose what he or she, or it's always been a he, unfortunately, so far, maybe a she one day, but thinks about cricket uh, and it can be as uh, sort of erudite or as slapstick uh, as you like, really. It's kind of what tickles the editor's fancy. I mean, you'd be daft probably to veer away in the early sections of that apart from the big stories of the year. I mean, I've had to write about coronavirus and Black Lives Matter, particularly in, in 
in this year's editor's notes because they were the two overwhelming themes, I guess, of 2020 yeah. in cricket. And yes, it is a lot of responsibility. I mean, that that piece will get headlines in the national press, the international press even. Editor of Wisdom says X, Y, and Z becomes a story. Whereas if I were to write exactly the same thing in my other job for the Daily Mail, it would be sort of probably booed and jeered and I'd be rotten yeah. tomatoes blown at me and rightly so. But the the, the fact that the, these notes have been going, I think since 1899, Sydney Pardon instituted them for, for the Wisdom Almanac. They've become cricket's royal soapbox in a, in a sense, haven't they? And what the wis- editor of Wisdom says seems to pack some kind of a punch. And when you wrote your first one um, we've already talked about the kind of the nerves and the apprehension there a little bit but do you look back at previous editors notes and think right I need to kind of imitate that tone or have you did you make a decision to make it yours no I think from the start I was determined to do it my way I wasn't even sure what my way was I just knew that I had to find out what it was and I thought if I if I try to imitate some of these guys that's a that's a road to disaster I mean they're all most of them were journalistic heroes of mine. Uh, and the idea that I could write as beautifully as Matthew Engel or be as concise as John Woodcock or as pithy as Tim Delia was was daft, really. So I had to I had to kind of trust my own voice. I had to believe that I'd been appointed for a reason, which is that someone somewhere thought I had something worth saying. And I had to I had to go with that. So you you have to wisdom as a whole, it's not just the editor's notes. You have to edit it in the way you you think is right, and you have to impose to a degree your worldview i mean you you can't it's not about your ego but but if if you're commissioning pieces that you yourself aren't aren't interested in that'd be a a a strange way to go so i try to commission pieces that interest me and and i hope perhaps egotistically will therefore interest a lot of other people but who knows that you know that's up to the readers to judge generally speaking if you are doing something creating something if you're enjoying it and you are interested in that that comes across doesn't it and usually the end user appreciates it Exactly. And that, that's why I think it's that's probably the, the main reason actually why you have to commission stuff that interests you because you're going to throw yourself into it and, and, and the reader will notice that. If the reader will notice if it's if there's sort of indifference and a greyness and a blandness to the pages and I, that's obviously the thing you've got to avoid, isn't it? Who knows wins? Download our app right now from the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store and play against your friends with bragging rights and real money on the line. Who knows wins? Put your money where your mates are. Who knows wins in a league of their own? When you got the job, was it something you had to apply for? Did somebody come and knock you on the shoulder and say, do you fancy doing this, Lawrence? How, how did that process go? I was approached out of the blue. Um, it's not generally something that you apply for, as far as I know. Um, so I, a, bit, a bit like being a spy for MI5 or something. Somebody just comes and knocks you on the shoulder in a corridor somewhere. Well, I was invited out for lunch by someone from our publishers, Bloomsbury, and I th- assumed it was they wanted me to do some kind of a book, possibly. I didn't know what. Bloomsbury do lots of anthologies from Wisdom. I thought maybe I'd be doing Wisdom's greatest writings in Northamptonshire or something like that, which would obviously be the book I was hoping to do. And, and instead, I was offered, I was sounded out for the, 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 the Almanac job, which so it came as a total shock to me, a, pl- a pleasant shock, but I... Yeah, I didn't have to think too long before before saying yes, please. How long did you have to think? Did you did you actually go away and actually mull it over, or did you just think, oh, this is an opportunity I can't pass up? Well, I was I was slightly shocked. Uh, I was slightly shocked about why they wanted a new editor as well. Uh, the previous editor, Shield, seemed to me to be doing a great job, and. So I was a bit concerned about sort of replacing a a guy I considered a a friend and a colleague. Once it became clear that they were going to appoint a new editor, I thought it would have been daft to not put myself in the ring for, for that reason. 
so they then there, there was a, then a bit of a delay. I, I did my first wisdom a year after I thought I might be doing it initially, but that that wasn't that wasn't a bad thing. And, um, and here we are now. And do you sign up copy by copy, or do you sign up for a ten year period? How does that work? It's generally year by year. I've had a couple of two year deals in my various contracts down the years with Bloomsbury, um, but they tend to renew it or otherwise in the December sixteen months before the next one. If you see what I mean, so that if they were going to replace yep. you, the, the new the newcomer would have time to get their feet under the table so yes every december pretty well i, I sort of find but i mean look yeah, i think it'd be a shock if they turned around in december and said we've suddenly decided to sack you i mean it may happen but so far it hasn't and i, I i'd like to think i'd get a my antennae would be twitching throughout the year if, if, if it uh, ever got to that stage obviously there are certain controversies aren't there i mean you your editor's notes you are critical of people you talk about things and there are certain damn backlashes maybe a bit strong maybe it's not if there is controversy does that make you Twitch as an editor, do you, or do you think actually I'm doing my job here? Yeah, um, you you want your criticism to be fair. I mean, you've got to quite often. I mean, I'll be doing interviews like this, or I'll be going on the Today program or Talk Sport, and they might ask me about my views, and I'll have to be damn sure I can back them up because there's nothing worse than slagging someone off in print and not being able to sort of explain why you did it. So I like to think there aren't, there won't be any unpleasant surprises. I read through the notes and think who who's going to take offence here, and what will I say if they try and pick apart my argument you have to you have to be in that position otherwise you you look stupid you're probably going to be asking me ask me a question now which i'll have no answer to but generally speaking that is the, the policy and also you, yeah you it's not that you you set out to upset people far from it but if you feel criticism is warranted you have to go for it i i, I believe i don't i don't see the point of being a journalist um with a, a platform like that and not using it to make constructive points i hope it's never just uh, being rude for the sake of it um, I hope that there's a, 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 the basis of it all, a love of the game and caring about where the game goes. That, that is what has carried wisdom through and is what makes people respect its voice, I think. Being able to, that once a year you stand back, you, you speak about why the game matters and in what way it matters to you. I always try on, on Twitter, which obviously has got my Twitter feed's got a, a far less importance than the wisdom, the Bible of cricket. If I'm going to say something, I always think, would I say that to somebody's face? And that, I guess that's what you're saying, really, isn't it? Yeah. Can you argue that if somebody actually came up to you and said, "I don't agree with what you've said," can you actually substantiate what you've what you've written? Yeah, that's a good test. I mean, you know, looking back, I, maybe there have been one, one or two occasions where I thought, "Would I have said that to his face?" Actually, was I? Did I momentarily sacrifice that principle for a nice sounding sentence or a, <laughs> a soundbite? Of course, we we can all fall into those traps. You know, I, I might have been too harsh on Kevin Peterson a few years ago. Who knows? But you do what seems right at the time. Uh, and you always try not to be vindictive. You, you put pressure on me a few moments ago by saying, ask me a question that you don't know the answer to, which I'm sure I can't do. But The, the 100 is a bugbear of mine, as you as you probably know. And I've just seen, just before starting this interview with you, I've just seen a piece by Nick Holt, which basically says they're not going to call wickets wickets, they're going to call them outs. And it kind of almost feels like they're just creating a cricket version of baseball to me. Is, is that something you've got strong opinions on the 100? Yeah, I mean, last year's wisdom, when, of course, we thought the 100 was going to start, uh, I, I led the notes on on the hundred because I felt it was a seminal moment in the history of English cricket and in probably probably cricket around the world as well. We were, we seem to be moving away finally from red ball being what matters and white ball being the driver of the game. I mean, we, we, you know, we've always known that economically white ball cricket 
drives the game. It's just that the administrators always say that red ball cricket remains a priority and they don't really back it up with their deeds. And sure enough, around most of the world, test cricket is barely watched by by anyone now. Forget forget COVID. If you go to a test match in the West Indies at one of their nice new grounds, take Antigua out of town, no one can reach it. There's no one watching. And it, it seems very sad to me when test cricket... I mean, look, t- take the first round of the county championship. Great game, Somerset, Middlesex. I went to the first day at Lords. Uh, Middlesex were all over them. Somerset fought back from impossible positions three times and they finally win a great four-day game at the end. And someone on Twitter came on today and said, isn't this just a bit better than all the six fests at the IPL? And I feel like a little Luddite agreeing with him. But for me, Red Bull cricket's what got me into the game, the ebb and flow, the the way characters of the players can come out over a long period of time. I get that white ball cricket runs the show and, and pays the bills. But I think there's room for both. And I think the 100 is a, a sort of slightly long-winded way of addressing your, your main point. But I think the 100 is symptomatic of giving in to that basic urge, which is to pay the bills. I mean, I, I know there are other reasons why the ECB have got the 100 involved. They want they want to give women's cricket a, a, a bigger platform, and that, that's great. They want to get more games on terrestrial TV, who, who really could argue with that. But we just have to be careful about the, the the implications for the other forms of the game. You know, the county championship is even more margin, marginalised than ever. We've had snow interrupting games this season. I'm, I'm sure climate change has something to do with that as well. But nevertheless, we've got eight rounds of matches in April and May. So good luck to spin bowlers trying to apply their trade. The 50-over competition will clash with the 100. Uh, the T20, which is doing extremely well financially, getting spectators in new demographics. They talk about wanting women and children through the gates at county cricket. Plenty of them are coming to watch T20. Grounds were packed. Why not just you know, um, throw even more resources behind that? And of course, the 100 won't be allowed to fail. And we, we can't let it fail. You know, some part of me the nasty part of me probably does want it to struggle a bit but I know that it has to succeed for the general well-being of English cricket because of the money that's been pumped into it so look let's wait and see I think there will be unforeseen consequences um, I hope the ECB have got it right I just think it's a huge risk that didn't need taking we're getting off the subject of wisdom a little bit here but I, I think the worry for me with the 100 is I, I love the 18 counties I love the fact that there are small counties that have got a history they're as proud of as some of the bigger counties yep they may not have won um, a huge amount of trophies but they've still created England players down the line and they have their place in in the uh, in the structure of English cricket. I just think the danger for me of the 100 is that it's a potential lose-lose for county cricket that if it's a success the 100 then obviously that will be seen as the as the most important competition in the English domestic summer and the money will get thrown into that and the focus will get thrown into that. And we've already seen um, Bumble was tweeting last night that we should cut back the county games. How do we fit four formats in? Because we should cut down back county championship games. We should have a 50 over knockout competition. We should have less T20 blast um, matches. Well, your average county supporter doesn't want that. They want to actually support their county in those competitions. And that's what they've bought their membership for. So there's a danger if it's a success that counties suffer and if it's a failure it's draining the resources out of the game isn't it so for me I, I just can't I, I, I will probably watch some of the games and I will probably enjoy some of the games but I just don't think it's needed yeah I mean look it's a it's a sort of market driven idea isn't it and and the, the sort of one of the potential collateral pieces of collateral damage that you allude to there um, you know smaller counties going to the wall is all part of the capitalist approach to running sport you know I don't want to get too political but th- there's been talk for years that the ECB would be not too unhappy to see one or two counties go to the wall and they, the, the argument being that if they can't support themselves why should we support them and uh, you know I, I, I do get that but 
also, as you say, that there's a richness about the 18 county first first class structure. The, the so-called smaller counties have often produced players for, for other counties to steal. Leicestershire have become a nursery for Nottinghamshire. Mm. Northamptonshire produced Swan and Panesar, the England's two world-class spinners of the last 20 years on turning pitches at Wanted Road and Somerset done the same with, with Leach and, and Bess, England's latest spinners. So all these counties have a part to play. I guess it just doesn't bring in as much money as, as the administrators would like and that, that has, has always been the, the problem. Blackratcricket.co.uk You've probably spent lockdown dreaming about scoring runs and taking wickets. Well, let Black Rat Cricket kick you out and take you towards success. Blackratcricket.co.uk They've got a swanky new website and if you quote Badger when you check out you can get yourself 15% off blackratcricket.co.uk join the infestation has there ever been a subject that you thought I want to write about this and then you've actually told yourself I better not Ooh, that's a good question um well I mean you hear all sorts of whispers about match fixing don't you I mean all any cricket journalist does, uh, but of course they're, it's fraught with legal issues. You have to be 110% sure that what you're saying is is correct. Uh, might there be takes on a certain player that won't be pursued by the writer, you ask? I mean, interesting, we, we got a piece on MS Dhoni in this year's book who, because he announced his retirement from international cricket last year. So we've got Sharda Ugra, excellent Indian cricket writer, to do her sort of perspective on him. And I was discussing with her how we're going to do this piece. And I said, one of the issues people have, has he ever been able to quite shake off the, the sort of semi-allegations um, that dogged Chennai Super Kings uh, when, when they, they had to disband for a couple of years? He was captain, I think he's vice chairman or vice president of Indian Cements, which owned the company. So he's got a lot of, you know, a finger in a lot of pies. How are we going to deal with that? Some people have watched him play innings and gone, why isn't he? Why hasn't he kept chasing all the way to the end? You know, how, how do you deal with those questions without libeling someone? And and, and, it, and it's tricky. I'm not, by the way, suggesting any malpractice on Tony's part here, far from it. But I'm just raising the the, the issue that you, you do have to deal with some thorny questions sometimes. And yes, of course, it's up to the editor to steer things in a way that you think is both interesting and safe. You were the youngest editor to be appointed for 72 years, weren't you, when you got that lunch invitation? Um, that's something that's going to be on your CV forever, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a... It's a notable element of your CV now, isn't it? Well, it might be. Whoever succeeds me might be younger. But yeah, I mean, at the time, I suppose that, that was the case. Um, yeah, look, the, these wisdom loves a stat, doesn't it? And that's a classic kind <laughs> of cricket stat. The, I mean, no one outside cricket is going to go, oh, there's the youngest wisdom editor of 72 years. It, 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 I suppose it, it fed into the idea that I had a lot of responsibility on my plate at a youngish age for that kind of a job. Wisden has been doing these honours boards at various counties. So if you've you've got a Wisden Cricketer of the Year, we've been trying to encourage counties to put the board up in their pavilion or whatever and, and, and add to the names as and when they get named. And I, a couple of years back, I helped to unveil the one at Lancashire. And the chairman at the time was Derek Hodgkiss, who very sadly died last year of, of COVID and has his obit in, in this year's Wisden. And I hadn't met him before. And he said, he said to me three times, you're very young, as if it was a sort of, I was like, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I'm I am the age I am. Um, I'm actually 46, so, so you know that doesn't sound that young anymore. But but yeah, it was. Um, I guess that that is a sort of both a, 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 a sort of compliment and a slight albatross. <laughs> 
the listeners on the podcast won't be able to see you, but I can see you and see behind you. And there's a bookcase or several bookcases with plenty of books on there. I imagine plenty of those are cricket, but I can't see a, a wisdom on there. Uh, well, let me let me turn. Ah, now then, Sorry. there is the bookcase with all of the wisdoms in. Yeah, my wisdoms. Yeah, that that wall is all cricket books, and the back wall is a few others. So, um, yeah, that, that's this is my sort of library. Really, this is my study. This is where uh, it all gets done pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I was asking there is because there are voracious collectors of wisdom aren't there there are people who pride themselves on having every single edition dating back to the very start of uh, wisdom's publications there how aware of you of that and does anybody write to you and say look i've just i've just completed my set you know that, all that kind of stuff yeah the collectors are a, a big part of it sometimes you try you don't try not to think too hard about the number of wisdoms that just get put on a shelf and are never opened mm. people just want it to you know keep the collection going um it helps sales though doesn't it Oh, absolutely! Look, collectors are, are, are priceless to, to us, and you know, a full set of wisdoms is is lucrative. I mean, we're not quite sure how many full sets of original wisdoms there are in the world. Probably, you know, between fifty and hundred, something like that. Uh, but uh, but they reckon a full set would go for certainly six figures. And of course, some wisdoms are more uh, harder to come by than others. Um, the, the, the first couple aren't aren't that easy. The nineteen sixteen, which has the obituaries of W. G. Grace and um, and Trumper in it, are hard to come by. There are one or two wisdoms where there was a paper shortage because of the war the 1971 wisdom there weren't as many published because after south africa were, were their tour of england was cancelled in 1970 the publishers reckoned that there probably wouldn't be as much interest and of course the rest of the world team stepped in and that, that was a great series so some of them are just randomly hard to come by um yeah you do get people inquiring after one or two copies but there, there are loads of second-hand dealers now i mean you, it's almost impossible not to find a copy of the one you want apart from one of the the, the very rare ones you just need the money to be able to actually afford to buy the rare one, don't you? How close are you to having a full set there on the to um, your to your left? Nowhere near, actually. Actually, when I when I got the job, I did wonder if it came with it with a full set, but but no <laughs> such luck. No, I've got um I've got everything back to 1973. I was born in 75, so I'm and then lots of gaps. I got quite a few in the most of them in the 19th century. Big gaps in the 40s, 50s, 60s. So I I, I chip away. I'm not I'm not a collector by nature, but I will keep chipping away. Doing the IPL podcast at the moment daily, and I've got my fan badges that come on, and they they basically talk about the cricket every day. And I mentioned to them that I was um, talking to you later and asked them if they've got any questions. Um, yeah. So I, I've got three here, which I'll I'll give to you. And one of them is uh, from Daniel. Um, any player he is aware of who are wisdom badges? Do you know of any players that are voracious collectors or are very keen to get their hands on it? I mean, obviously they get a leather bound one if they're um, named as the wisdom cricketer of the year, but for some of them, I'm sure that's the only wisdom they they own, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that is a really good question, actually. Yeah, as you say, the the, the leading the, the the five cricketers all get a special leather bound. That's been going back to the, about the mid nineties. Dermot Reeve made some headlines a few years ago when he sold his because he was he, he needed some cash, and the, the person who bought it promptly gave it straight back to him. So he's he, he was at four grand to the better, and he still had his yeah. wisdom in back. No, is the, the the honest answer? You can see I'm stalling here because I'm trying to think. The honest answer is I don't know of any badges. I, I do know that it still means something to a lot of the players. Um, I remember sitting once at a dinner next to Mike Gatting and I asked him what his kind of back in the 80s, what would the, the goal of a kind of good county batsman be? And he said to score 100 against each of the other first class counties and be named a wisdom cricketer of the year. And I don't know if he's just saying that because I was sitting next to him. He might have been just saying the right thing, but it, it, it sounded genuine enough. And certainly the, 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 the willingness with which players who've been named a cricket of the year come to the annual dinner at Lords, or we haven't had one this year because of COVID. But generally speaking, we have a nice black tie dinner at Lords the day before publication, and the five cricketers are always invited. And if they're free and in this country, they come. 
you know, and they sit through the speeches, they listen to me bang on for 10 minutes, we have a guest speaker, you know, the whole thing can be can last till 11 o'clock and then it's over to the Danubius Hotel for drinks. And but they, they they turn up and they sit through this little moment of history. Uh, and I think they realise they, they get chosen once. This is, their, this is their wisdom year. It might not be their best ever year, but it's their year and it'll always be in that wisdom hall of fame. That's one of the nice things about it. You know, people say, why don't you just choose the best five cricketers each year and they could be named more than once and my answer I guess is that well then we become like all the other awards and Ben Stokes and Joe Root win it each year and where's the interest in that frankly I like the quirkiness that you get I remember the the first year I chose my five one of my five was Alan Richardson the Worcestershire Seamer and he'd never have got close to the award if it had just been the five best cricketers but he by my reckoning he'd he basically kept Worcestershire up in division one by himself and he had a great career where he'd get he'd get sort of 70 wickets a season at 21 apiece and no one ever thanked him for it and I thought this is the classic unsung county player let's name him and I'd, I'd always resist I tried to resist accusations of tokenism or that I'd gone sentimental or soft you know I want a player to punch his or her weight when he gets the award Richardson was so chuffed when he got the award he brought his um, fiance now wife to the dinner apparently he's got a, a, a sort of printout of a newspaper piece about him getting the award on his down in his downstairs toilet at home and he and I've always got that bond now you know if I see him it's like wisdom cricket of the year so it does it, I think it does mean something to players more than more than you probably imagine and, and perhaps in that respect wisdom is a is a unique cricketing publication he's a good man Alan Richardson he came on the Cricket Badger podcast last year and uh, thoroughly enjoyed talking to him so I'm yeah thumbs up yeah. for uh, giving him the nod I mean I'm sure you, you're like me Lawrence I mean I from the age of five six I was watching cricket on the telly going to games and uh, getting immersed in the game and wisdom was always there it is that thread through cricket isn't it that the wisdom almanac that yellow book it is synonymous with cricket to keep that thread going is is, is quite a big thing isn't it and I, so I can understand why players when they get one of the awards for the five cricketers or even a mentioned in it a bit of pride that you'd feel from that would be quite enormous I would think yeah and you have to you have to step back and make sure that you're not picking someone for the wrong reasons as well that you, my, you my bribe you mean <laughs> well your bribe would be a good example yeah um, you know that you're not just looking for a, a warm fuzzy reaction you, you the, the, the player has to be has to have damn well deserved it when you're coming to pick your five obviously women's cricket is ever increasing quite rightly you've got the test arena you mentioned Alan Richardson very much a county stalwart do you try and divide them up so you reflect each one of those areas or do you just go for your five that you the first five that come into your mind yeah I don't think you can do I don't think you can divide it up ideally there is a there is a broad representation ideally there's sort of probably two England players an overseas player a county player and a, and a woman player that would be your these days your your perfect template but you, you can't be driven by those things you have to pick the five you think are most deserving you haven't been chosen before and, and the impact they had on the previous season and sometimes that throws up you know people sometimes say oh you're biased towards batsmen other times so oh, you're biased towards England or county it is Someone always thinks you're biased against or for someone. That that's one of the <laughs> the perks of the job, I guess. And you will get some a degree of abuse when the the five are announced on Twitter, and you know you, you're fighting your your battles then. But I always my aunt is a bit of a pathetic answer, really. But I always say to them, I hear what you say. Who would your five have been? And then it becomes a bit harder because mm. it's all very well to say X, Y, and Z shouldn't have won it. It's like look, I I I've, I've been thinking about this all of last year. I bet you haven't been. Yeah. So. If there is a better answer, I will take my hat off to you. Um, but please, who is it? And, and often the, the conversation ends there. I've, I've, I've yet to have a year where I've gone, yeah, damn, I definitely should have taken that person. Arguably, sure, but not definitely. Does a player ever stay in your mind? Do you think, right, next year, I'm, that's that's a worthy one for next year, maybe? Yeah, you can, you, you can work like that. You might 
I suppose all things being equal, if you had a player who's right at the end of his career and one who's at the beginning and they had an identical season, I mean, it's yeah, ridiculous yeah. hypothetical. But if that were to happen, you'd probably go with the guy at the end of their, their career because you think that the other person would win it. But then, of course, you know, good players end up never winning it. I think when Shield Berry was editor, he did a piece, he commissioned a piece about the greatest players never to be a wisdom cricket of the year. And I think Bish and Beatty had never won it. In Zamamal Hack. MS Dhoni, you know, so there are some big names who have never been a Wisdom Cricket of the Year. Often it's the overseas players because, generally speaking, they have to be with a touring team unless they're playing county cricket. So there can be a bit of a bias against them just by the the very nature of the the, the way the award works. So, so um, MSD will never win it now, will he? Because he's never going to come with India to tour England again. No, and it'll be a, a sort of anomalous gap in his um, on his CV. I'm sure he doesn't care that much. He's got plenty plenty else going going for him in his career. But yeah. There will be some big names like that. I mean, generally speaking, a, a good England player will win it at some point in their careers. It'll be freakish if they didn't. But yeah, there are some strange gaps. Neil, who is uh, one of our Indian fans, he's a Sunrisers Hyderabad fan. He asks, did you ever get to present Virat with his leather-bound wisdom? No, I didn't. Um, and has he got it yet? It's, it's a good question because we we do have a bit of a backlog sometimes where we, we wait for that touring team to come to England or we wait till someone goes on tour to that country and sometimes for, for random reasons it hasn't happened I, it, that is a good question about Virat and, uh, and that reminds me to I'll make a note check once podcast is over what's happened to Virat's leather band there you go Virat if you're listening it's on its way it's on its <laughs> way um, and the final question from our badges um, it's from Knuckle he says what happened between you and Giles Clark at the Wisdom <laughs> launch dinner that was, was it about six or seven years ago where you wrote yeah. something about Giles Clark and he didn't take it very well did he yeah that was that was 2014 and actually what happened was our speaker at the dinner was Esan uh, Mani, who's now the, the chairman of the Pakistan Cricket Board and was previously uh, chairman of the, the ICC. And if you remember, at the start of 2014, there was the, the big three takeover where in India, England and Australia basically carved up the finances for themselves. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the other countries were outraged and it raised a lot of questions about financial inequalities uh, of international cricket. And Giles Clark was um, was ECB chairman at the time, I think, and, and played, a, played a decent part in, in that, in that carve-up. Anyway, at the dinner... I was sitting on Giles's table and when Essan Marnie was giving his speech and Marnie wasn't holding back, he was getting stuck into the, the big three. And you could see Giles wasn't happy about this. <laughs> he was sort of visibly ticking. And at the end of the speech, he we, we had a bit of a, an exchange about it and he stormed off and vowed never to come to a, a wisdom dinner again. And, and he's been true to his word. So. I'm going to give you the platform now for uh, to basically sell this year's wisdom if you need to do that. What's in it? What can people expect? Why should they buy it? It's the coronavirus edition, I suppose. I mean, it's slightly shorter than... It's the shortest wisdom, I think, since the early 1980s. It's 1,248 pages, which is nearly 300 fewer than last year. And that is a natural consequence of the, the relative lack of cricket. That's uh, played. Just to cut in on your sales pitch, I mean, that, that's an advantage you've got. I mean, I know from my experience of doing the Yorkshire Yearbook, you effectively can make any length you want, can't you, really, that, that book, as long as it's not ridiculously long? Yes, exactly. So we, we're supposed to keep it to within certain bounds. Bloomsbury want it around 1,500 pages. Equally, we don't want to make it so thin that people are going, hang on, we're paying the same price here. Uh, for, for the for a book that is 300 pages slimmer. Actually, the, the front two parts of the book are over 300 pages there that's sort of reedy stuff, um, stuff you might get stuck into, and that's about 60 pages up on the previous year. So our our, our argument is it's, it's thinner, but there's more to read. We've got the usual five cricketers. We've got the notes. We've got a lovely piece on the effect of coronavirus on cricket by Duncan Hamilton, who, who fans of the county game will 
will know and love, hopefully. Ebony Rainford-Brent has written a, an important piece about the, the, the importance of diversity in cricket. Jimmy Anderson has celebrated his new ball partner, Stuart Broad's ascent to 500 test wickets, of course, removing Craig Brathwaite to get there, just as Jimmy had done at Lords in, in 2017. Jack Leach has written about life in the bubble. Gary Sobers has written about the three Ws because, of, the, of course, the last of them, Everton Weeks, died last year, and that's a, that's a nice personal piece. Um, and we've chosen to mark an anniversary that passed in January, actually, which was 50 years of one day international cricket we've chosen the greatest ODI cricketer of each decade so rather than choose the five greatest ODI cricketers which would have been a tough call because comparing eras is extremely tough in white ball cricket we've gone for the, the best player in each decade so there's lots there hopefully um, there's Bob Willis trophy for county fans is covered in depth a nice long report of the, of, of the final Essex won by virtue of a first innings lead sounds like the Ranji trophy doesn't it uh, against Somerset so so it's all there we squeezed it into 1,248 pages to finish off with then the, the five cricketers that you've chosen for this year who are they? They are Zach Crawley Jason Holder Mohamed Rizwan Dominic Sibley and Darren Stevens. Do you know what? I was going to ask you earlier have you actually picked Darren Stevens yet? And <laughs> you, you're going to have you'd, you'd have to get him in at some stage because he can't go on forever can he? He can't he's, he's 44 he'll be 45 soon he's the uh, He's the oldest wisdom cricketer of the year since a guy, you'll, you'll remember him well, Ewart Astle of Leicestershire in 1933, who actually played on till he was 50. He was 45 when he was chosen. So Stevens is the oldest since 1933, which is quite a quite a feat. And of course, he just scored 100 against Northamptonshire. And I think that made him, that meant that he scored a first-class 100 in four different decades. You know, he just keeps it astonishing. We, we, I mean, we chose him for his bowling. He took 29 wickets in, in the Bob Willis Trophy and at 15 apiece for Kent and three five-wicket halls. And he just keeps going. You know, he's, uh, he's probably the most reliable medium pace from county cricket, isn't he? I had him on the Cricket Budget podcast a couple of years ago now, and he was on the verge of retirement then, and he's still going, and there's no sign of him stopping. So I think that's it. That's a great person to stick in your five this time around. Lawrence, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Cricket Budget podcast. It's a, it's a book that obviously means so much to so many people around the world, and it's in safe hands by the sounds of it. And uh, thank you very much for joining me on the uh, Cricket Budget podcast today. Thanks a lot, James. Great fun. Good to talk to you. Podcast Network.